In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, the many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray again. Our Father, we offer this time up to you as we seek to know your word, to understand it, and to love it and to live it. For it is your voice that is speaking to us in your word. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us hearts that are eager to receive. Help us to love you more. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling a story. And the story has happened not too long ago, but uh, it's about a group of young people who began a Bible study. Um, now, the reason they began this Bible study is helpful to know. Some of the young people in this Bible study uh, before this had, had come to a place in, in, in their life where they began to be curious about what they'd always grown up hearing. They'd grown up going to church, hearing about God, about Jesus. And all of a sudden, they actually started to want to know themselves. So they began reading the Bible and reading it very seriously and studying the life of Jesus and the early church. And they started realizing all this stuff that their whole life it seemed so boring and dull and frankly pretty irrelevant was fresh and transformative. And what they found as they studied the New Testament is that this Jesus is still alive and he is still working. And in fact, he still comes to individuals and bids them come to me, follow me and I'll make you fishermen of people. And as they studied this Jesus, they fell in love with him and it began to change their lives, it began to change what they cared about. And sure enough, they began talking to their friends about this Jesus, friends who didn't go to church, who didn't believe in God, and they even started inviting some of these friends to their church. The thing is, as, as this group of young people began to, to grow in their knowledge of Jesus and in their, follow, in, in their discipleship of Jesus, it started causing some ruffles, might we say, in the church. And that other members grew uncomfortable with this group. They felt they were a little bit too radical. They were maybe le- reading the Bible a little too literally, taking it a little too seriously, meaning everything in moderation, right? Not everyone's supposed to be a Peter, and everyone's supposed to be a Paul. But it really crossed the line when this group of young people began inviting their non-churched friends to the church 
At that point, the other members of the church let them know in no uncertain terms that the church is not for people with tattoos and piercings, and it is certainly not for people with hangovers. And so in an act of desperation, this young people really were forced out, and they left, and they started a Bible study. And, and, and as they met to, to again in this, in this group to read the Bible, to worship with both Christians and non-Christians, God began to bless this little group and they met multiple times a week. Again, they're young. It's not like they have families and responsibilities. So they're meeting multiple nights, and many nights they're just praying and worshiping late into the night. And it feels like a little bit of, of heaven. And God is, at, is, is moving in this group. They don't have an evangelism program. They certainly, don't have an evangel- they certainly didn't have an evangelism budget. They just started talking to their friends about Jesus and what he was doing in their lives They started inviting them to this Bible study, and non-Christians started coming and encountering the same Jesus and committing their lives to following him as well. And over time, this little Bible study grew into a small little church that was really one of the funniest churches you'll ever see because it was such an eclectic hodgepodge group of people. You had college students, you had high school students, you had professionals with real jobs, you had former atheists and agnostics, former Wiccan you even had some homeless who would come. And the one thing they all came for was this Jesus they had encountered who still lives, who changes lives, who had called them to follow him. Everything in this small church revolved around knowing this Jesus and learning to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The desire of everyone, more or less, was to see the kingdom of God advance in their workplaces, in their campuses, in their schools, in their neighborhoods. It was a beautiful community. And if I was going to, you know, do an object lesson of this community, you can see this. It's, it's, it's a little cross I've made of popsicle sticks. Um, pretty basic. Probably cost 10 cents. I don't know. I found it in the church resource room. <clears throat> um, but it's clear. You know what this is. You see it, and you immediately know what it stands for. And if you're a Christian, you know the power behind this. This is that little church. But over time, as the church continued along, things began to change little by little. None of them were drastic, but they were changes. One is that the church grew. I mean, it was a place where there was life, and that's very compelling. And so people began attending, and many times it was non-Christians coming to know Jesus, but the church grew, and pretty quickly it was, it was, it was, it was over 100 peop- 150 people on a Sunday, and so they ran to the common problem of, okay, well, what do we do for facilities? Trying to meet in someone's house doesn't work when you have 150 people. Renting a facility doesn't work a whole lot, doesn't work very well long term, so they decided we're going to bite the bullet, we're going we're to find land and build a building. We're going to start a building campaign. And so as this building campaign starts, they realize that this is going to be quite a project, and they really need someone who's going to just devote all their time to this. So they give a, a, a call to their volunteers for anyone, for a group of people who are going to devote their time to fundraising, to finding a location for this uh, location. And so, lo and behold, some of the most godly, mature believers are the ones who volunteer, as is usually the case. And this group of people give all of their time for the next year to finding a location and raising funds for this building. Next, as happens, the young folk fall in love and get married and start having kids. And so all of a sudden, they have all the, the stresses of raising children, of worrying about child care, of after-school activities. They're just busy. 
And the young adults who have jobs, they, they've been working long enough that they start getting promoted, which is very exciting because they now have more bills with kids to pay for, and these bills help, or these promotions help pay for those bills, but also means that their jobs are asking more from them, and they're more stressful, and they're taking up more of their emotional capacity. Less likely to be able to stay late at night and worship with other Christians. They got stuff to do. And the church keeps growing. Again, it's, it's a cool place to be. It's now around 400 to 500 members on a Sunday morning, which radically changes the Sunday morning worship. It's now when you show up, you, you, there's, there's most of the people you don't know, probably don't even know their name, and it becomes less and less common for someone you know to walk up to and really ask you, hey, how are you, how are you doing this morning? How can I pray for you? And one of the things, too, they begin to notice is that, yeah, there's a lot of people coming, but it's, 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 it's less and less uh, common for it to be non-Christians. A lot of these new people are coming are just coming from other churches, and they're, they're coming because they like the worship of this church, or they like the preaching, or they, they just like the general vibe of what's going on at this church. And then as they keep growing, they outgrow the new facilities. They have to move into two services, and again, this changes a Sunday morning worship. No longer can you simply go with what the Spirit is, is, is guiding you, but you've got to run a tight ship. That first service has got to finish up quick to, to not inconvenience those who are coming for the second service. And at the same time, as, as they're growing, as they're doing more services, all of a sudden more and more of the time and the energy of the church and of the leadership is geared towards this Sunday morning worship experience. And the reason for that is, frankly, at this point, that's pretty much all that people have in common. Of the hundreds of people that come, it's not because they know each other, it's because they share this Sunday morning worship experience. And over time, what began is this very beautiful, small, but powerful community, which was clearly there for a purpose, turns into this. We ask, what is it? Nobody knows. And oftentimes, this is what it feels like with our churches. What are we doing here? We come on a Sunday morning. Is it here? Are we just here for a service? Are we here to be encouraged so that we can live a better life? Are we here to make friends? What is all this about? It's not always very clear. Now, the story I told, it's not a story about any specific individual church. It's a story of every church. Every church begins with a fresh movement of the Spirit of God who convicts hearts and brings people to Jesus. And it begins with the desire to know this Jesus and see his kingdom come. But over time, every church drifts. Every church, to some extent or other. It looks different in different churches. Some churches just become obsessed with numbers. Maybe it's they want to start growing again. They want more people. Or maybe they want to continue the growth that they've had. And, and over time, it, that becomes the bottom line. How many people are attending our church? And lo and behold, you get this. For some churches, it's just traditionalism. When, when God started that movement in the church, he used certain methods, ministry methods, and, and rituals that worked and that had life and meaning, but they're doing the same things however many years later, not because they have meaning, but it's just what we've always done. The church historian Yaroslav Pelikan says, church tradition is the living faith of the dead. There's, we can draw from what our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents did, and, and we can use what was living in their day and our day, but traditionalism, according to Yaroslav Pelikan, is the dead faith of the living. So we just do the same things over and over because it's what we've always done, but there's not actually any meaning in it, and before we know it, this becomes our church. 
Now, we are beginning a series in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts tells the story of how the church began. It tells the story of what happened to the followers of Jesus after he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. And the title of the series is From Jerusalem to Rome to Louisville, The Gospel on the Move. And the reason that's the title of this series is because this series tells the story of a small group of Jewish Christians who encountered Jesus Christ, who committed their lives to following him and began to take the gospel first to Jerusalem and then throughout the Roman Empire and then to Louisville. The reason the title is from Jerusalem to Rome to Louisville is the way Acts ends, as we'll see whenever we get to the end of it, it ends on a cliffhanger. It doesn't wrap it up in a nice, tidy conclusion, but it ends just abruptly. And the point is, this story of this gospel movement is continuing and we at Vine Street Baptist Church are part of that gospel movement. And so spending time in Acts, reading it and studying it, it gives, an off, gives us an opportunity to take what may be many accumulations and layers of things that hide what, what we're really here for and begin to peel those back and begin to rediscover this Jesus who's still at work and still changing lives and to begin to rediscover the community that he founded, which is the church and what is the purpose of this community and what, in fact, we are doing when we meet together. So let me put this away before I make a mess of it. Now, we're looking at the first 11 verses of Acts 1 this morning, and I just want to give you a heads up that although it's only 11 verses, Jesus says a whole lot. And so we're going to be covering a lot. Put on your thinking caps. If you need to stand up and shake out a little bit, ain't no one going to say nothing. Give me your best this morning because we've got a lot to cover. But Jesus is telling us three main things. He's actually telling this to the apostles, but he's also telling it to us at Vine Street Baptist Church. And this is the outline for us this morning. First, he's telling the apostles that they're entering into a new era. And it's a new era how God is going to work. It's the era of the Spirit. And that's the era we live in now where God moves and operates and acts by his Spirit. That is how he is present. And this new era of God's work brings with it a new focus as we'll see, the disciples are still learning what is it they're supposed to be focused on, and there are certain misunderstandings, and they're going to have to change their focus. And the primary aim of this new focus is this new mission that we are given, which will be the third point. So a new era, a new focus, a new mission. Let's go ahead and jump into our first point, a new era. If you haven't opened your Bibles, go ahead and open it and keep it open in Acts chapter 1. It'll be the easiest way to follow along. And, uh, and participate in our service this morning. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, follow along as I read that again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you remember from the time we spent in the Gospel of Luke, Luke and Acts are written by the same person. In fact, they really should be seen as kind of part one and part two of the same book. They both tell the story of Jesus and his, and his work. In Luke, it's his work in, in, in his physical life, earthly ministry. In Acts, it's his work through his spirit in the church. But it's telling the same story. And so actually, before we jump into Acts, again, when we come to Acts, it's like you're picking up a book and beginning it in the middle. 
It's better just to look at, okay, how did this start in the beginning? And so you don't have to turn there. I'm going to have the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke behind me where he gives kind of an introduction to this whole Luke-Acts book that he has written. And this is how Luke begins this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word we have delivered have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke, he's saying, look, other people have tried to describe how this Christian movement and community began, and they were all based on eyewitness accounts, and Luke says, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to give an orderly account. Where do, you know, this is written... Decades after Jesus has ascended, there is now a Christian church. It's not big, but it's gaining notoriety. And so Luke is trying to tell them, hey, look, this is where it all came from. And he's writing to this guy, Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. Just based on his name, he clearly was a a Greek. He was probably a Greek Christian. Based on the fact that Luke calls him the most excellent Theophilus, he probably had some distinction. And possibly what's going on is he's a a high-level Greek Christian who's having doubts. Because the Roman Empire is in a time of persecution. He's seeing the church being oppressed and he's beginning to wonder like, maybe I picked the wrong team here. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I got this wrong. And so Luke is writing him an account of, of Jesus, his earthly ministry, his, his ministry through his church to, to, to let him know, no, you can have certainty. Jesus was the son of God, the Messiah, the kingdom of God has come. You can have certainty in this. And so in these first few verses in Acts, Luke just kind of gets us up to speed with where we are after beginning, uh, after, after, after Luke. Again, he's told the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke finishes with his crucifixion, his resurrection, and even ends with his ascension. And he picks up here in Acts in between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. So Jesus has, has, has been crucified, but he's risen. The disciples know he's risen. And what Luke tells us is that there are 40 days in between his resurrection and his ascension. And in that time, he's doing things. He's, for one, he's appearing to his disciples to convince them that he really was risen. Because the ancient people, just like you and I, were not in the habit of seeing dead people come back to life. And so Jesus had to appear to them again and again. Hey, guys, no, really, I'm not a vision. I'm not like, you know, indigestion, like, uh, like a, a, a Christmas carol. Uh, I really am physically risen. I'm the risen Lord. You can, you can believe it. And then he's also teaching them about the kingdom of God. But in verses four to five, Jesus gives them a very important command that comes with it an important promise. And this is one of the main themes of the entire book of Acts. So follow along in verses four to five. And while staying with them, again in between the time of his resurrection and his ascension, these 40 days, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The command is to wait in Jerusalem. Don't don't go on a vacation. Don't, Don't go home. Don't work. Wait. And wait for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't be confused by the word baptism. When we think baptism, we think of what what happens behind me in our baptismal when someone professes faith and is part of their initiation into the church. But baptism literally means to be immersed. That's all it means. And so what Jesus is saying is you're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. You're going to be dunked in the Holy Spirit. You'll be clothed. The Holy Spirit will overwhelm you. 
Wait for it. It's the promise of the Father. Now again, this, this, this promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is one of the major themes of, of Acts, and so it's worthwhile just to pause and try to give some background here of what's going on. Um, so first, let's just talk about who Jesus was. Again, when Jesus came, he was not just a teacher or a prophet, but he came claiming to be someone specific. He came, came claiming to be the Messiah. Within the Old Testament, there was prophecies about a coming leader who would be a Messiah, which means a savior, who would save Israel. It was modeled after Moses. The great event of the Old Testament is a deliverance, it's the exodus from Egypt, from slavery. And it happened because God sent a leader who, would, who saved Israel from their slavery. And then he promised there's going to come another leader like this Moses, but he'll be greater. And he's likewise going to save Israel. And so if you remember in Luke 2, when Jesus is presented at the temple, Simeon, the great man of God, the devout man who is waiting on the promise of God, prays, my eyes have seen God's salvation when he sees Jesus. Jesus came claiming to be the Messiah, and this is how it connects to the promise of the Father, is that one of the major signs that the Messiah had come, according to the Old Testament, was that God would pour out his spirit in an unprecedented way. So Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, which we'll actually look at again in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. This is a very important Old Testament prophecy. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is referring to. In the Old Testament, God would pour out his spirit at times, but it was always for a particular occasion or a particular individual. When the spirit rushes upon Samson so he can rip out the gates and do supernatural things, then the spirit departs. Or the spirit would come upon prophets and show them oracles from God. But the promise here is that you will know the Messiah has come when the Holy Spirit, when the presence of God himself is poured out on all of God's people, not just the kings and prophets, but all those who are truly God's people. It'll be a sign that the day of salvation has arrived. That's the promise of the Father. The sending of the Holy Spirit in Acts is the most significant event that happens in the entire book. It ushers in a new era of God's salvation history. Now it is the era of the Spirit, where we don't worship God in temples and certain locations, but we ourselves, our bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit, the Holy God, whom Israel couldn't approach at Mount Sinai on fear of death, all of a sudden is enveloping us, dwelling in us, both in our corporate body and in us individually the promise of the Father. The new era that Jesus is telling his apostles they are stepping into is that not only has Jesus' death and resurrection covered our sin and guilt and conquered death, but God has come in closer to us than ever before by pouring out his very spirit on us. We are in a new era of God's work. And this new era requires a new focus for his people. This brings us to our second point, a new focus. Again, first point, a new era, the era of God's spirit. Second point is a new focus. Verses six to seven, please follow along. 
And so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, the first time you read this, you may wonder, like, golly, they're still on this, like, political kingdom shtick. Like, haven't they learned yet this Jesus Messiah was crucified? But in their defense, it tells us right in verse 3 that one of the things Jesus is doing in these 40 days is he's talking about the kingdom of God. So kingdom language is in the air, and so their question makes some sense. But what's clear is that the disciples, the apostles, still have some misunderstandings about Jesus and what he's come to do. And before they can really be apostles, sent ones from the risen Jesus Christ to bear witness, they're going to have to correct some of their misunderstandings. They're going to have to get a new focus. And and we see three misunderstandings here in verse 6 that Jesus doesn't address here, but he'll address throughout the book of Acts. But we're going to go ahead and, 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 and look at them now. But the three misunderstandings, the three wrong focuses, we could say, is first, that the, that the kingdom of God is going to be a political kingdom. Again, they say, we would this time restore the kingdom to Israel. The Jewish expectation for Messiah was that the Messiah would restore the Jewish monarchy. We know this from extra-biblical materials. There's a lot of what we call intertestamental writings. They expected a Messiah to be like King David, King Solomon, who would restore Israel to the kind of golden era when they had political dominance, military dominance, free them from the yoke of of the Roman Empire. But if you remember, Jesus, when he was on trial before Pilate, told, and Pilate said, "They, they say you're the king of the Jews. And Jesus doesn't deny that, but he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And of course, that doesn't mean that his kingdom doesn't have worldly benefit or worldly uh, application. What he means is my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a political kingdom or a physical kingdom. Uh, You know, a physical kingdom, you can walk the boundaries and see this is as far as the reign of this king goes. But the kingdom of God is one that's invisible. It extends from heart to heart as people turn in faith to the risen Jesus Christ. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. That's the first misunderstanding the apostles will need to learn. And I find it very interesting, uh, you know, God is sovereign, and this is the word he wanted for us. I find it interesting that he included verse 6, this mistake, that the, the, the apostles still thought it was going to be a political or physical kingdom. And I find that interesting because they were not the last Christians to make this mistake. So the reformers, as much as as, as they got so much right about salvation and about the church and about many, many things, they got this part drastically wrong. And that many of the reformers, they tried to make Christian societies, which means they made certain, you know, Christian beliefs mandatory. And if you said wrong things about Christian doctrine, you'd be burned at the stake. They were trying to make a political kingdom, a physical kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. And the reason why, again, the reformers got this so wrong is that they're just, they're frankly, theologically speaking, there is no such thing as a Christian society. It does not exist. And let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus Christ has given his name and his authority to one institution in this world, and it's the church. He has not given his name or his authority to any legislation, to any governing body, to any government. He's only given it to the church. And so there is no such thing as a Christian society. 
And the reason for that is you can't, how do we enter the kingdom of God? It's by faith through new birth. And you can't legislate new birth. You can't coerce people to convert. And when we try to do that, it's devastatingly destructive for the church and for the souls of people. Again, the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. It is not a physical or political reality. And this is one of the reasons why I get very uncomfortable when when Christians in America talk about America as a Christian nation or trying to make America a Christian nation. Now, if all that means is Christians, we should vote our convictions and we we should argue biblically in the public square, then yes and amen. What else can we do? just like a non-religious person is going to need to bring their secular convictions into the public square. Yes, amen. But more often than not, when we talk about making America a Christian nation, what we're doing is we're binding our faith to our particular national identity. And so we become American Christians, which reverses the allegiance. What we're saying is we're Americans first, and then we also happen to be Christians. But the truth of the matter is if we want Jesus as our Lord, he will be first. And so we are Christians. We are citizens of the kingdom of God who happen to also be citizens of the United States of America. We can never mix those up. And, and, and again, the reason for that is because this kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. That was the first misunderstanding kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. The second one is that the kingdom of God is not going to be an immediate kingdom. Look at what they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're saying, is it all going to come to conclusion right now? Jesus, are you going to make all the bad things end now? Are you going to come back in entirety now? Is it going to happen right now? And of course, what we see is the disciples struggled with patience just like we do. But the kingdom, and again, this is one of those ones that will be answered throughout the book of Acts, as we'll see, but the kingdom of God is, is not one that will come with the decisiveness of a military victory, because again, it's not a political kingdom. But it's one that will expand gradually as people, as Christians who have encountered the risen Jesus Christ, begin to take the gospel to their neighbors and to those in other countries, and as hearts turn to Jesus, the kingdom of God is one that's going to expand gradually. It won't come immediately. So the first misunderstanding was that it was going to be a political, physical kingdom. The second one is that it would be an immediate kingdom, that Jesus was bringing this right now. Then the third misunderstanding is that it was going to be an ethnic kingdom. Again, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still think the kingdom of God is going to be based on ethnic identity. But what will become very clear throughout Acts is that the kingdom of God is drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's going to be an international community of people who give their first allegiance not to their kin or their family or their country, but to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the community that he has founded and given his name to. The disciples still have to learn what their focus is going to be as apostles. They're going to have a unique, unrepeated office in the new church, but they have to learn what it is they're supposed to focus on. Their focus is not on starting a political, physical kingdom, but it's to proclaim a spiritual kingdom that we inherit by faith. It's not to herald a kingdom that's coming right now, but one that will grow gradually and mysteriously. One of my favorite verses, because it's so encouraging to me, is John 3, 8, where Jesus says, wind blows where it will, and we don't know where it's going to blow or where it's going to blow to, and that's just like those who are born of the Spirit of God. 
God works in mysterious ways, and oftentimes we don't even realize he's at work until he's done it, and we wake up and we think, wow, where did this all come from? And again, they needed to change their focus that this will not be a mono-ethnic reality, but an ethnically diverse reality. They needed to change their focus from these things to a focus Jesus is about to give them, which will govern the purpose of the church, and that's the new mission. But before we get to this new mission, which is our third and final point, I just want to get into verse 7 a little bit, because Jesus gives a little bit of a rebuke, and there's a warning here, I think, for us. So again, in verse 7, you know, in, in answer to this question from the disciples, Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Uh, the disciples want to know, God, how are you going to bring your kingdom? When will it happen? What will be the events leading up to it? Give me a blow-by-blow, blow, Jesus. I want to know how this is going to work out. And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Um, times and seasons, times revert to kind of singular events that are, you know, of great importance. So, right, July 4th, 1776, Declaration of Independence. Um, seasons are more like epics of time. You think of the medieval ages, the, the industrial age. How is God going to move through history? Well, Jesus says, it's not for you to know. Instead, what Jesus is saying is, there's many things I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you one thing very clearly, which is this mission. And that's what you're to give your time to. Don't, don't be distracted by all these other things that I'm not revealing to you. Give your time and your effort to what I'm telling you very clearly, which is going to be this mission. It's very similar to what God says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. There will always be a temptation for us as Christians to give our time to things that aren't clear, and they may be very important things, but to do it at the expense of what Jesus has actually made very clear. And when we do that, we're being distracted from what Christ has called us to do and to be. And we walk down that road long enough, and again, we turn into that amorphous blob of who knows what we are and what we're doing here and what we're supposed to be doing. But anyways, the focus of what the disciples are supposed to give their time to is this new mission. This brings us to our third point, a new mission. Let's read verses 8 to 11. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These are the last words that Jesus gives to his apostles and to his church before he ascends. That gives them a certain level of gravity of importance. And this mission has an activity. Let's look at the activity of this mission first. He says, you will be my witnesses. Now he's speaking first to his apostles. and I mean, they were literally eyewitnesses. To be an apostle, which was an office of the church, you had to be an eyewitness both of Jesus' life and his resurrection. Uh, at least you had to be a, a witness of his resurrection, and, and, and usually had to also have been around during his earthly ministry. And so Jesus is speaking to those who had walked with him in his earthly ministry, 
and had seen him resurrected, and his, his, his mission to them is, go tell people. Go tell the truth about what you've seen. Go tell people that this Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and you have seen him come back to life, and he is still alive now. Go tell people. Bear witness. You are eyewitnesses of these things. But this is a mission not just for the apostles, but for the whole church. Now, you and I have not seen the risen Jesus Christ, or at least I have not, unless you've seen him in a vision. And I certainly none of us were with him in his physical, his earthly ministry, but we're also called to bear witness. And what does that mean if we're not eyewitnesses? Well, we have all encountered the risen Jesus Christ by faith. We've come to know this Jesus, and he's changed us. And what it means to bear witness or to be his witness is simply tell the truth about who Jesus is, about what he's done. And do that to everyone and anyone who God puts in your life. Just tell the truth. Be honest about who Jesus is. Go bear witness about that. The activity that God has given to Christians and to the church is to be his witnesses, to tell the truth about Jesus Christ. But how long are we supposed to do this witnessing? Who are we supposed I mean, how, at what point have we shared the gospel enough? Have we told the truth enough that we can complete the mission? Well, Jesus gives us next the scope of this mission. And he, and he does this by lifting these geographical areas. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What Jesus is saying is this mission he's giving to the church is one that will have both a local focus and an international focus. It's not a small scope. It's those that we, it's those that we live next to in our homes. It's those that we work with. It's those that God has put in our family, but it's also those who live across an ocean, who come from different ethnicities and speak different languages. It's both if we want to be a church that is stepping into the mission of God, it means, one, we're going to be witnesses here in this neighborhood. You know, wanting to be a witness in Germantown is not just my pet project. It is a command from the risen Jesus Christ. Be witnesses in Jerusalem. For, for, for the disciples, that was, that was their neighborhood, Jerusalem. But we can't just be a church that's concerned with Germantown. We've also got to be a church that's concerned with what God is doing around the world. And that's why we have missionaries who we pray for and we support taking up the little resources we have to see the gospel extend. The scope of this mission is one that extends to the ends of the earth until every tribe, tongue, and nation has been able to hear this gospel and given a chance to respond. And very, very, very importantly, this is a mission that comes with spiritual power. This again is in verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, at the ends of the earth. You will receive power. Uh, the idea of power is inherent in a kingdom. A kingdom is only where the power of the king extends. Where the kingdom ends, the power of the king ends. And so talk of power and kingdoms go hand in hand, but when you come to the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual reality, the power of God is his very spirit clothing us, baptizing us. And what that means is his spirit, when we, take, when we step out of faith, his spirit gives us the courage to say what we would be too scared to say otherwise. And not only that, 
but the Spirit takes our words, which, I mean, if you've shared the gospel, sometimes what we say, you know, it's like we do our best, but like, oh, it sounds so bad and so uncompelling. And he takes our faltering, stumbling efforts, and he makes them have the power of the Spirit of God to bring conviction. I think if all of us went through our stories of how did we first encounter Jesus in a saving way, I think if we could hear the words that were said to us, they probably wouldn't be that impressive. But yet they, they landed like thunderbolts on our hearts. That's the power of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit clothes us and gives us power. And one of the things this shows us, guys, is, is, is you know, this promise of the Father, that the mark of the new era, we're in the era of the Spirit. One of the main functions of the Spirit is to empower Christians to step into this mission. That is how central this mission is to the heart of God, that he's going to give part of himself to people like you and me to be his temples so we might be empowered to see people come to faith. Again, coming back to the illustration I began with. When we look at the church and we wonder, what is it here for? What are we doing Again, Acts helps us pull back the layers. There's a lot of layers on this one. And gets us back to what is, what is primary. Which is to bear witness to this Jesus we've encountered. To tell the truth about the Lord who has saved us and redeemed us and forgiven us. This provides a good litmus test for our church. When we think through all the things that we're doing and what we want to do, and the question we should always be asking ourselves is, is this going to further the mission that Jesus has given us, or is it going to distract us? When we think through how we spend our resources, and we do our, our yearly budget, and we go through each line item, the question we as a church should be asking us Asking ourselves, is, does this expenditure, does it further the mission that Jesus has given us or is it distracting us? When we think of the programs we do as a church or we think about starting a new program, the shot should always be, is this program going to further the mission of God or is it going to distract us? And more broadly, as we think of our own discipleship, of our growth, as we think through what do we want to be in 2023, we should be asking ourselves, are we being formed into the kind of disciples who are more and more stepping into this mission? In whatever context, God in his wonderful sovereignty has placed you. None of us have the same context. All of us encounter different people and do different things, and God in his wonderful, majestic sovereignty has a plan for all those contexts. So are we being formed into the kind of people that are seeing God at work and are stepping in even when our knees are knocking and our hands are sweaty and our, we have pit stains because we're nervous but we want to follow this Jesus? Are we being formed into those kind of people more and more? And so again, to summarize, Jesus is telling his, his disciples that they have, they're entering a new era of how God operates, and it's, it's the era of the Spirit where God sends his very Spirit upon his people. It's a time when we'll, we need a new focus. This kingdom is not about political kingdoms or physical kingdoms. It's not a kingdom that's gonna come immediately. We gotta be ready for the long haul. 
But it's not a kingdom that's going to be made up of one ethnicity, but it'll be a beautiful mosaic of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is a new focus that's supposed to be given to a mission. While we wait for Jesus to return, he's given us a mission. The Lord Jesus has given Vine Street Baptist Church, this beautiful church that meets on the corner of Highland and Vine. He's given us a mission to follow him and to witness to him. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you'll give us grand visions of the mission you've given to us, that it will stir our hearts. Lord, that you will show us ways that we can step in faithfully. It may not be big ways, but ways that we can step out and we can enter into this mission and to know that there's nothing better. As scary as it may feel, as as disruptive as it may be to our life, there's nothing better than to step into the mission that you've given us. Because we want to see people come to know you. We want to see your kingdom advance. We want to see the spirit descend in powerful ways. We want to be the church that you have called us to be. So we offer you 2023. May it be for your glory. May you do things in our midst that will make us sing your praises till the day we die. Only you by your spirit can do such things. So we pray in faith and expectation. We love you. Amen.